This is the Inner Voice Audio Experience, and I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Endurance athletes spend a lot of time in their own heads, and their own self-talk can either drive them towards their goals or crush them in an instant. We often focus on mastering the body, but these battles play out in the mind. I host inspiring athletes and innovators from across the endurance sports industry and explore the trials and tribulations that often play out well before race day and in their personal lives. You will recognize the names, but you won't have heard their stories told like this before. This is a one-on-one interview with Mario Frioli, a competitive runner, coach, and perhaps most well-known for his weekly newsletter and podcast, The Morning Shakeout. Mario was kind enough to invite me into his home in Marin County, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. During this episode, he opens up about his battles with disordered eating, the tragic loss of his mum following the 2008 Boston Marathon, as well as the incredible experience he had attending the 2012 Olympic Games as the coach of Costa Rican marathon runner Cesar Lozano. Mario is a passionate philosopher, husband, and athlete. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Once again, this week's episode is supported by the awesome team at iCore Labs. iCore produces a natural hemp source of CBD that protects your body from stress, improves athletic recovery, and helps you maintain a positive mental state. As a thank you to our listeners, they have a special offer, which I'll share with you later in the show. For now, enjoy my sit-down with Mario Frioli. Mario Frioli, the uh, founder and creative genius behind The Morning Shakeout. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for coming to visit me at my home. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a quick trip to get from Boston <laughs> to quite a ways. here in, uh, in San Francisco, so it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Mate, the first thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, we're going to delve very deep into a few different things, but, um, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a subscriber of yours. I love your work. Uh, you sent your digest out this morning and you talked about being burnt out. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you making the time and continue to kind of um, be here with me. But I'm sure there's been an outcrying from the community or support to say, you know, pat on the back, hope you're well. Do you want to tell me a little bit about kind of where you're at there with that and, and what the response has been from you being so open and transparent? Yeah, if I'm being honest, I've felt this, I'm calling it burnout, this feeling coming on for a few weeks just where I've been feeling overwhelmed, not with the newsletter itself or the morning shakeout as a whole, just in general. I call it general burnout and I think I know I have a tendency to take on too much sometimes and just in one of those situations and I've been here before and I've let it go too far and it's been really hard to dig myself out of that situation and I could just feel over the last several weeks that I was feeling overwhelmed, tired, unnecessarily stressed, not enjoying what I'm doing quite as much as I usually do. And those are all telltale signs to me that, hey, something isn't right here and you need to step back and reevaluate things. Otherwise, you're going to continue down this spiral and it's going to be a lot harder to dig out. So it's more me recognizing that starting to feel a little bit of burnout and I don't want to become completely burned out or worst case depressed for some reason. So it's just being 
self-aware really of how I'm feeling right now with everything that I've got going on and being able to step back from that and reevaluate all the things that I am doing, why I'm doing those things, which of those things from a professional standpoint should be my priorities or I want to be my priorities and deciding how to move forward from there. Yeah, and I think um, acknowledging that and being self-aware is really important and it's it's tough um, to really admit that. And you know what has been the reaction to that so far? It's wild. I checked my email a little while ago and had dozen replies from people and I haven't gotten back to anyone yet but most of those were in response to that opening paragraph where I talked about feeling burned out a bit and this morning I also got a call from Brett Rivers who's the owner of San Francisco Running Company and a good friend of mine he's like hey I just read your email I've been there I'm always here to talk and we ended up talking for about 20 minutes and I really appreciated that so I wasn't expecting that necessarily and nor was I looking for it, but it's nice to know that people care and understand and can resonate with that and are willing to help in any way that they can. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that we're all human after all. And the fact that, you know, the people that the digest goes out to are humans and you're a human, you know, be it in the public public eye and um it's nice, A, for you to be able to recognize it and then other B, other people to be able to recognize and, and support you through that as well. And um, changing gears a little bit, it's uh, it's nice to be sitting on this side of the table uh, <laughs> for me to be able to interview and spend time with you. What's it like? It's weird you? sitting on this side of the table. I was going to say, what's it like for you to be on the other side and kind of having to, um, you know, react to questions or think about your answer rather than, you know, preemptively thinking about the next thing you're going to say? It's strange because I have a lot more experience on the other side of the mic, being the person who has done the research ahead of time, who is curious about whoever it is that I'm talking to, and actually asking the questions, listening to how they respond, and then volleying back and forth and just having a, a great conversation. So it's, admittedly, it's weird being in, in this seat, uh, somewhat uncomfortable, but also I think it's a great opportunity for me to think about some things that I don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about. Well, why don't you um, give us a bit of background on, on on you and how you actually got into running and starting the, uh, sorry, not I shouldn't say running because it's mm. obviously running as the sport, but how did you get into starting the morning shakeout? And obviously that started as a digest and an, an online presence and then mm. has now um, transformed into the podcast as well. Why don't you give us a bit of background on how that uh, came to be? Yeah, so this morning... I sent out issue 172 of the morning shakeout and I have not missed a week since I started it. It's come out the last 172 straight Tuesdays. So we're talking three plus years of the morning shakeout email newsletter, which I started um, when I was at still at competitor magazine, working as a senior editor of, of competitor. And that was fall of 2015 when I released it. And it was a creative itch that, I needed to scratch and I'd been sitting on the idea and the URL of the morning shakeout for a while, probably a year up to that point and just didn't know what I wanted to do with it or in what format I wanted it to come out. I'd thought about writing a blog. I thought about an email newsletter, uh, thought about possible print publication of some sort. I didn't know what form it was going to take and I ultimately decided to go with an email newsletter because I was thinking about how people consume their content 
and it's really it sounds stupid but it's really tedious for someone to go to a website now and check it to see if there's something new there and people aren't necessarily trained to do that but people are I don't want to say trained, but people do check their email all the time, so they're always in their inbox. So I wanted to be where people were already spending quite a bit of time. And I also wanted to be predictable. So from the outset, I knew that I wanted this to be a consistent thing. Once I released it, I was committed to releasing it every week for the foreseeable future and I wanted it to come out every Tuesday morning and I wanted people to expect to, to have it on, on Tuesday morning and really it was just an outlet for me to write about things that I couldn't necessarily write about while I was working on staff at competitor and <laughs> my biggest area of interest is, is running so in competitors are running publications so there was definitely a lot of overlap but I couldn't really get opinionated writing for competitor I couldn't take as deep of a dive as I wanted to with some of the interviews that I was conducting and I really wanted to have a home for that and the morning shakeout became that and I could share my thoughts on things and really you know what it's sort of become more of over the last year or so is a collection of things that I'm reading or listening to that I find interesting or inspirational and I know that other people who are interested in the same things that I am are likely to also find those things to be educational, informational, inspirational, whatever it may be. Uh, and I share those things and, and the response has been fantastic. Yeah, I love every Tuesday morning opening up my inbox and I I, I probably have uh, a record of subscribing to Opens, I think. Uh, since I started, I don't think I've missed a week. So I really appreciate the work that you do. What's I'll check into that later. Please Mail check Champ in. gives me that data. Yeah, please check in. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I have a good streak going uh, over the last nine months or so since, uh, since I was introduced to you. Um, What's changed for you in this process from episode one or issue one to 172? What, what's been a shift that you've, you can kind of talk to us about? Uh, it's evolved in a number of different ways. I think as I just alluded to, it's become more of me sharing things that I'm interested in, which I was doing that from the beginning, but I was doing less of that early on and being more opinionated about issues in the sport of running or things that were happening in the industry. And early on, I had much more of a focus on media in general. That's still something that I'm interested in. And that has definitely faded over the last couple of years. And I will still get opinionated, and I will still write what essentially amounts to a column some weeks if there's something going on. But there's been less and less of that for a variety of reasons, which we can get into, um, but more of little tidbits that I want to share with other people. So it's become, become more of that. Um, in the last year or so. And then the other big change was the addition of the podcast a little over a year ago. And that was a natural evolution of the morning shakeout as a brand. I had been doing these longer form interviews that I called going long and much like what you do at inner voice, I would transcribe them. I'd get large format photos. I was publishing them on medium because I liked how that looked and people could spend the, their time with these interviews and read through and go back to them and highlight things and, and whatnot. And I still want to get back to doing some more of that. Um, and I've always loved interviewing people. It's my favorite thing to do at Competitor. And I'm an avid podcast listener. I know podcast as a medium is becoming more and more popular. And it just made sense to go in that direction um, a little over a year ago. And, and again, it was another one of those ideas. I'd been sitting on it for a while I knew that I had the chops to do it. I knew that I could do it well. 
I was just dragging my feet on actually putting it out into the world, and I finally did. And I haven't been quite as consistent yet with the podcast as I've been with the newsletter. I'm in a good groove now where it is coming out every week. For a while, it was usually three out of every four weeks, and I took a little bit of a break over over the holidays. But it's been fun to see that evolve and grow over the past year in terms of its reach for sure, but more so uh, the quality of the conversations that I'm having. I'm doing a lot more of them in person now uh, rather than over Skype, which the first 20 or so were over Skype. And I'll still do them um, just because the accessibility is a lot easier. Um, But I love taking my mics with me when I'm at an event or if I'm traveling and seeing who I can get in touch with that's in that area that either know or maybe that I have never even met before and getting them to sit down with me for an hour or so and sharing their stories. And what have you learned through that process of the podcast? So, you know, I think it's 54 or 55 episodes, I think, from memory. Um, I've recorded that many. Yeah, I just published 51 yesterday. Got it. So so through those 51 episodes, what have you kind of learned about yourself and the way that you interact with other runners and what you've learned from your conversations that you've had over those 51 episodes? It's a good question. I haven't given it too much thought. I've learned that I like talking to people. I like talking to people more face-to-face than I do over Skype. I've never been one to really talk on the phone, whether it's with my family or girlfriends or friends or even my own athletes that I, I coach. I just don't really like talking on the phone. That's essentially what the Skype conversations are. And I've done decent enough at those but to be able to sit across from someone like we are now and to look someone in the face and have a a real actual conversation with them and and feel a a connection has been somewhat surprising because I've interviewed people in the past many people in the past in person and they're usually quick it's after an event you get 10 or 15 minutes it's very topical and you don't really have the opportunity to go deep and with the podcast I have that and I've learned that people, I don't mean this in a bad way, like to talk about themselves. They like to share their stories. And I've learned that when you give them not only the platform to do that, but also the space to do that, one of the things that I've learned as an interviewer, especially in this podcast medium, and that I think I've gotten better at is just letting people talk. I really look at my role as a host I'm just a conduit Um, the show the episode is about the guest it's not about me it's my show and I'm the host and people are familiar with me and maybe with the types of questions that I ask and how I'll approach a subject but at the end of the day the show is about whoever it is that, that I'm talking to and I've learned to just listen to my guests and oftentimes and I find myself in this seat right now, as you're answering a question from the host, you can see the guest figuring things out for themselves sometimes. And that's why I was saying a little while ago that for me, sitting in, in this chair, it's, it's uncomfortable because not that I don't think when I'm hosting a podcast or not that I'm not giving thought to the questions that that I'm, I'm asking, but it's a lot easier for me or it comes a lot more naturally to me to do that than it is to sit here and think about what it is that you just asked me. And, you know, like I, I'm experiencing it now. I'm like, huh, what did I, what have I learned, um, from these 50 
some odd episodes that I've recorded, and I really haven't given that deep thought until now when I've been put on the spot and forced to think about it. Well, that's, uh, I think, the thing that I love about it as well is the opportunity to ask questions that may have an athlete think. Mm-hmm. Um, quite often, you know, some of the podcasts I've been on where I'm sitting in your seat as the, as the interview. Um, you know, you'll get a, a set of questions beforehand and you'll kind of have your own canned answers. Right. And I think that's what uh, we really try to do with Inner Voice as well is not look for those canned answers. Right. It's like, wh- what can we do and how can I facilitate uh, deeper thinking or different thinking to allow the guest to, you know, learn something about themselves through the process as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, through the, the conversations that you and I have had over the last nine months, um, I've really found that you are a deep thinker and um, you talked to me about your, um, your major in college. I majored in philosophy. I philosophy. minored in psychology. Right. So, uh, and I think how, you know, I'd love to know how that translates to you as a, you know, as a business person, as a coach, as a uh, partner and as a friend, how does that kind of show up in your life? Well, philosophy taught me how to think, taught me how to read with discernment. It taught me how to write, taught me how to you know, get the thoughts out of my head and onto paper. For me, like writing is thinking. And I, one of the big appeals to philosophy for me as a student was that there were hardly any tests. It was all papers. I would much rather write a paper and think through something and get it down and back up whatever argument that I'm trying to make than to answer a multiple choice test or even short answer essay. And I've been able to take the skills that I developed doing that and parlay it into a media career, for lack of a better term. I've written a lot of articles, taught me how to ask questions of people, (laughs) which I do now on a weekly basis. Uh, And it's fun to look back and connect some of those dots. From a coaching perspective, I tell all my athletes from the first meeting that we have I if you're looking for a physiologist I'm not your guy I have a basic understanding of physiology I know how the body works I have a very solid understanding of how it responds to certain types of stress enough that I can coach someone to where they want to get but I'm much more of a psychologist and I am more interested in how you're feeling after a given workout or what's going on in your life and how those things are affecting this pursuit of running than I am about your heart rate or your power or whatever other physiological markers that you know people can tend to get hung up on. And that comes from philosophy. Um, you know, I had a great coach in college who taught me a lot about training and how to put workouts together to achieve a a result. And I've always studied that on my own because I'm interested in it. But I don't, at least I don't think I let that guide me. I think I'm more guided by things that I've read, not pure philosophy texts, but just trying to take things out of, you know, I'm influenced by a lot of different things that that I've read or people that I'm around or, philosophies of life that I've seen people live out and and I think you know I end up applying those things to you know my coaching my writing and 
I guess business. I've I've never really thought of myself as a as a business person, but I am. Um, you know, I, I have to be. I'm self employed now and have been for the last you know for the last few years. And I don't have a business degree. I don't know much about business practices, but philosophy has given me the tools that I need to navigate those waters successfully. Talk to me about your coaching. So you've got a you know a successful coaching business, are a, a, an accomplished runner yourself. Like how much of your experience as a runner feeds into your coaching philosophy do you coach uh, one-on-one do you coach a group is it online tell me a bit more about how you approach that so I've been coaching in various capacities for the last 15 years since I graduated college and how I started coaching was after we graduated I had teammates who wanted to continue running just locally cross-country series and the Boston area are training for their first half marathon and now none of us were part of a college team and most of them didn't join a club but they wanted a program to follow to you know to, to train for whatever race that they were getting ready for and three of them asked me to write programs for them because they knew that I was interested in training theory I'd always geeked out on that kind of stuff uh, I knew I was on top of the latest research i knew what the greats had done i knew what we had done in college i had a very firm understanding of what you know what they had done and how to develop their training off of that and that's i mean that's really how i got started and i've been a competitive athlete for 22 years now i believe and i certainly have learned a lot about myself as an athlete but i'm just an n of one and i can't let that be the only thing that guides my coaching philosophy. I've learned a lot. I've made plenty of mistakes that I can spot in other athletes and help them from making those same mistakes. But I've also just tried to be very observant. I've been observant about my teammates and my competitors, and I've always asked a lot of questions. And in my time at competitor, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of my time around some of the top athletes and coaches in the sport and I had the opportunity to ask them questions and learn and I feel like that's some of the best education that I could have ever gotten as a coach much more than I would have learned had I gone and sat down at a USATF certification meeting or RRCA certification meeting not to knock those programs at all but they weren't going to teach me what I was able to learn from my own experience and from asking questions of people who had been in the sport for a while and had experienced a number of different things that helped inform my perspective. Tell me about coaching at the Olympics in 2012. One of the coolest experiences of my life. And I was very fortunate to have been presented with that opportunity. It's not one that I necessarily foresaw coming and while I was at competitor my main role as senior editor was to coordinate training content for the magazine and the website so I wrote a lot of it myself I assigned a lot of it out to various writers and still have hundreds of (laughs) training related articles on the internet that I've been responsible for and had a guy um, from Costa Rica reach out and on behalf of an athlete that he represented, asking me if I'd be interested in helping him prepare for the London Games. He had run 217.50 at Chicago the fall before. He had the qualifying mark. No one else in the country was going to get it. Uh, 
I don't know exactly what happened with his previous coach, but they were looking for someone to help him get ready. And he wanted to talk to me. And I thought it was one of my buddies just messing with me uh, because I'd never heard of this guy, Cesar Lozano, or his agent, Mario Reyes, at the time. Uh, I knew nothing about Costa Rica. Certainly knew nothing about Costa Rica as a running country. Um, but I said, sure, I'll talk to you. And, uh, you know, didn't end up being one of my buddies. And they really did want to talk to me about coaching Cesar and they were interviewing a few other coaches and ultimately decided to go with me and I still thought I knew that he was training for the Olympics and that was I think only nine months away from the time we started working together but I didn't think that I would actually be there in a coaching capacity and they were able to you know Costa Rica's delegation was very small they had 11 athletes total for the 2012 games and they had coaches and physios and other people who were part of the delegation and they asked me to be a part of it and of course I said yes I mean what an opportunity to go to the Olympic Games and experience the whole thing as a coach to live in the village the men's marathon was at the end of the athletics program so we had a lot of time we still had training to do when we got there but you know, we went and we trained and we spent all that time in the village and trained on the same track as, you know, Mo Farah and Usain Bolt and all the other Olympians from the from these other countries. And it was it was pretty surreal. I mean, I've worked with some higher level athletes, but that is the ultimate level. If you talk to someone about professional running, the first thing they're likely to say to you is you mean the Olympics. And, and even though that is not necessarily a professional pursuit that's their that's their perception of it and it was a it was an awesome opportunity I learned a lot Cesar's race went well and I hope to have that experience again sometime yeah that's really cool and I think um, you know you are an accomplished athlete yourself why don't we talk a little bit about that you recently had a PR at the uh, California International Marathon in December in mm -hmm. Sacramento a long time between drinks from your last PR Talk to me about what that was like. Did you ever think that you would run faster than you ever run over the marathon distance again? Or had you kind of resigned yourself to the fact that, you know, that's my best time, um, you know, and, and I'll do my best on any given day, but not best that time again? I knew I had more in me. I, I knew of all my PBs, the marathon was the softest. And I had run that PB in my first marathon in 2007. And... I just I knew there was a lot of room for improvement. What I didn't know is if I would ever get to the point again where I could fully commit myself to the marathon and go after it. Um, I knew that I had it, but I knew it wasn't going to be easy. And I dedicated myself in 2018 to my own athletic pursuits. I like to say I put the oxygen mask on first and really started to think like an athlete again for the first time in, in a long time. I, not that I'd ever had, other than some injuries, not that I had ever really stopped running or training or even racing to some degree, but it was never my priority. I was always taking care of other things first, other people, my own athletes, professional pursuits, what have you, sacrificing sleep, not exactly eating well, skipping workouts I mean you name it in 2018 I just eliminated all those excuses and said this is it uh, you may not have this opportunity again give yourself a year I'd signed up for Boston and 
eventually signed up for CIM. And Boston, it's always a crapshoot in terms of the weather. and It's not necessarily a place that you want to chase time. But I wanted to have a good Boston. But CIM was where I was going to race the clock and see if I could take some time off of that 228 and change that I had run back in 2007. And looking back, it all worked out to plan. Uh, it doesn't always go that way. Um, and I hadn't really given it much second thought as I was training for either race, but to be able to look back after CIM and look at what I had written a year prior about dedicating myself to my own training and racing and committing to eliminating excuses and looking back and knowing that I actually did everything that I could do to set myself up for success is a really gratifying feeling. What were some of those uh, tangible shifts that you made? What were some of the changes that you had to make in your life to make that a priority? Biggest one was eliminating excuses. And what I mean by that, I travel quite a bit for work. I have a busy life in general. I've got my hand in a lot of pots. I would put those things ahead of my own running, which would mean I'd either skip workouts or I'd shorten them or whatever i'd make some excuse and i stopped doing that last year so if i was traveling i planned ahead and made sure i got my workout out of the way first thing in the morning i was in new york last fall about a month out from cim and i had a i had my longest run of the cycle 23 miles and i woke up at 5 a.m and ran loop after loop after loop of prospect park before a busy day of doing marathon related things um Whereas a year prior, I would have either skipped that run or gotten out a lot later and not run as many miles or made some kind of excuse that I could fall back on and use that as a reason for why I didn't achieve my goal. So it was a lot of, a lot of that. Um, I think that was the big thing, prioritizing sleep, which is not an easy one for me. I have a hard time, like most people, shutting off. And I had to force myself to do that a lot of times because, as we all know, sleep is the best thing that you can do to enhance your performance. That's where all your adaptations happen. And I know that, and I preach it to my athletes, and I wasn't necessarily practicing that myself. So one of my own mantras for last year was to be about it. Like, I talk about it all the time. I tell people what they need to do because I can see it happening in their lives, but I needed to be about it myself. And that was a big shift for me last year and something I'm trying to maintain now in 2019, even though my goals are different. Um, I'd be really interested to hear whether or not you think that um, shift in focus related to a drop in performance in other parts of your life or did the fact that you were focused and you were using your time more effectively and efficiently actually help you be better in the other parts of your life? I think it helped for sure. Um, as I said, I put the oxygen mask on first because by doing that, I was better able to take care of those other things in my life. For me, nine out of 10 times that run has to happen first thing in the morning or it's not going to happen or it's going to be a lot shorter and it's just not going to be as effective. So it was having that as the start of my day. And it was the first thing that first major thing that I would do after getting out of bed and it felt really good to have that done and check that box and say all right I've, I've accomplished something and, it, and again back to the whole sleep thing it started the night before where I would put myself to 
bed earlier than I would have otherwise so that I could get up and have that workout. And it was better planning, getting in touch with people about meeting up for workouts and long runs, which has always been more motivating to me to have other people to, to share that with. And by doing that, it gave more structure to my day. I found that I had more energy, even though I was training a little bit harder. And it just helped me to have a better perspective on everything that I was doing and how all of those pieces fit into the puzzle. And did it kind of reignite a passion in you um, that maybe you had lost or just, you know, running was a part of your life, of course, but was there a passion that kind of, you know, a flame that sparked again last year? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I am a very competitive person and that doesn't just apply to racing and running applies to all areas of my life, but the area where it is most apparent and where I feel I can be most competitive is in running. It's, it's a primal thing, right? It's like you're racing someone else to the finish line or you're trying to see if you can best a time in my case that I'd set 11 years prior. And I can't tell you what it was that flipped that switch for me, but I felt that excitement in a way that I hadn't felt it in quite a while. And I improved my marathon PR. I ran one of my better halves in quite a while. I didn't take down any of my other PBs, but I raced better than I had in quite a while. And some of that was just accepting, like, this is where I am in life. And some of those shorter PBs, especially, like, I'm just not going to touch them now at 36. <laughs> I set them when I was 21. Uh, and, you know, that's that's fine. But that competitiveness was burning at a level, at least in running, that it hadn't in quite some time. And it felt good again because I wasn't sure if I'd ever get back there. How does the competitiveness show up in the rest of your life? What are some of the instances of where you feel like you're competing against, you know, it might even be yourself, really? Like, what are, what are some of those things? Well, that's it. I'm always trying to get the best out of myself, whatever it is that I'm involved in, whether that's being, I want to be the best husband that I can be. I want to be the best coach that I can be. I want to be the best friend that I can be um, when it comes to business and the morning shakeout and things that I'm involved. I, I want it to be the best that I can make it, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't looking at other podcasts that were out there, other newsletters or other forms of digital media and seeing how I stack up in terms of quality, in terms of consistency, in terms of impact. And some of those things are easy to measure. Others are more subjective. But that stuff fuels me. I love it. I, I love being in the mix and seeing, you know, seeing what I'm, I'm capable of and how I stack up to other people, but also the expectations that I have for myself. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And it's like, it, it doesn't have to be a competition that's um, negative on you or the other people you're competing against. And people, you know, may not even know, but it, it's a driving towards something that's better and being better. Um, and I think that's why I'm really inspired by the work you do. And, um, you know, I'm able to look at the work you do and see the diligence and the thought that you put into it and, it. and it drives me to be better in what I'm doing as well. Yeah, competition shouldn't be looked at as a negative thing. I mean... I love listening to a lot of the Kenyan runners after a race and they talk about 
their fellow competitors, not as competitors, but as colleagues. They're working together to make each other better. And I've always thought that whatever it is, whether it's running, whether it's in my relationships, whether it's in my work, if I'm trying to get the best out of myself and being the best that I can be, that is going to inspire other people. Hopefully it inspires other people to be the best that they can be. And if they're the best trying to be the best that they can be, and they're pushing me to to be the best that I can be, that's a great thing. I mean, that should be celebrated. That shouldn't be criticized at all. And for me, competition fuels almost every aspect of my, my life. And, and there can be a dangerous side to that for sure. But I think it's more of a positive thing, or at least if you channel it the right way, it can be a positive thing than, than it is a negative thing. I agree. And I think it probably comes along with that self-awareness piece that you talked about earlier is being aware of who you are as a person and what you um, what you consider success and how you feel successful um, and not using it as a, a negative thing where you're like jealous or com- comparing or, you know, some of those things that aren't going to serve you, you know, as a human being, let alone yeah. in business or in sport. Um, I, I'm very interested to hear what's your favorite thing about coaching? Great question. Again, one of those things I should think more about, and until I'm put on the spot, I don't. But I think, I mean, for me, it is seeing an athlete that I am working with realize a potential in themselves that they never saw. And maybe I didn't even see it at first as well. But through the process of working together and me learning about them, they learn about themselves. And, for example, I have a woman in San Diego, Hillary Corno, who I've coached now for going on nine years. And she's in her early 40s now. When we started together, she was running 255 marathon. And she had been stuck at 255 for quite a while. And she'd been running for a while as well and her goal was to to break 250 which is wasn't going to be easy but it was a a manageable goal and i remember when she cracked 250 for the first time she ran 247 and some change and she was elated that was that was her goal and she had it by a healthy cushion i remember telling her that she wasn't done yet Mm. and she's like you really think i can go faster and I was like, yeah, I think you can qualify for the Olympic trials. And that was 245. And fast forward a few years, she's run 242 and some change now. As a master's runner in her 40s, as someone who has been running for 20-some-odd years, and there's no better feeling than seeing someone accomplish something that is beyond their wildest dreams. But beyond that, it's just being on that journey with them. I've always looked at my role as a coach. I am not the driver. I'm not the bus driver. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. I am telling you where to go, what to watch out for, when to turn. I'm, I'm there with you, um, but you're driving, you know, you're driving the bus, and it's a tremendous privilege to be sitting next to someone when they're on that journey, and it's not a role that I take lightly. What took her from 255 to below 245? number of factors. I think the 
one of the most fundamental is just trust is is trusting me to guide them to a place um and the other side of that is being open-minded to what that place is i think oftentimes as endurance athletes we can be very numbers driven and in her case you know she was it was i want to break 250 which is great nothing wrong with a, a goal like that but I don't think you should ever limit yourself. And and I think it's just keeping that open mind in terms of the type of training that you're doing. I mean, you've got to trust it, but being open to it and not putting a, a value on anything. I tell my athletes all the time, my goal is to help you get as fit as possible, to be as prepared as possible so that whatever race day throws at you, you have the tools to deal with it and you know that's certainly fitness and there's a lot of other components that are you know that are essential to that but i think it's just being you know just being open to that kind of approach i know as you know being an athlete and um having been a coach myself as well over time you gain a lot of confidence from particular workouts as an athlete and Mm -hmm. you can look back over your training cycle and and gain confidence from the work that you've done do you find you gain confidence from examples like that as a coach where you have been able to look at a process and say that worked for this person, you know, and then get a you know a bit more confidence in yourself to be able to stand by the work that you can give these athletes and the coaching you can give them to guide them through that process? Yeah, I mean, every athlete is different. That's, I mean, that's so cliche. Um, I shouldn't even say it, but it's true. And every athlete that I work with, I mean, I, I coach some groups here locally that are you know they're part of a they're part of a club and I I coach the club and I don't necessarily work with those athletes on an individual level they show up to the workout every week and the club has target races that you know we're going after but my one-on-one athletes I treat them all as as individuals I treat them as people first I pride myself in getting to know them not just as athletes and their history and types of workouts that they've done and times that they've run and all that stuff but sort of what makes them tick just on a day-to-day basis what they get excited about what they struggle with how they spend their time Um, and back to the whole philosophical thing those things influence a lot of the training decisions that I make more of the training decisions that I make than whatever numbers I see, you know, in their log and depending on the athlete. Yeah. You know, if we're getting down to that, um, depending on the type of athlete that they are and their background, if I've worked with someone long enough, I understand how they respond to certain types of, of stresses and I know which workouts will give them confidence. I know which ones that they're going to struggle with. I know which ones are a good benchmark. Um, and you know, we'll certainly factor, you know, I'll, I'll factor those in as I'm writing their plans and, you know, maybe over the course of a training cycle or from training cycle to training cycle, we'll go back to certain workouts to see, you know, how they've, you know, certainly how they've progressed. Um, you know, but for me, it's being kind of in constant communication with them and, and getting their subjective thoughts and, you know, how they're feeling about the type of work that they're doing, how they handled a workout the second time around versus the first time or, you know, yeah, we'll get objective about it and look at how the numbers compared. I don't know if this, if, if any of this answers your question. I feel like I'm rambling at, at this point, but that's, you know, that's how I, you know, that's how I approach it on an, on an individual level. Yeah, no, I think it definitely it answers the question. I think one thing I, I'm interested in, do you have a certain workout that you, that's your favorite workout to deliver to an athlete? Let's say it's, you know, a, a month before a marathon or throughout a period in in a training cycle is there one workout that's kind of like 
your favorite to uh to to offer up to the athletes the one that keeps them up at night uh and that's going to differ depending on on the athlete but almost in every training cycle especially with the marathon i'll give them a workout and they'll usually see it a week ahead of time that they don't know if they can hit it and I think there's something about instilling just that little bit of fear in them, uh, you know, that that's healthy and, you know, they've, they still got to go out and, and do it. Even if they don't think that they can do it, they still have to have the courage to go do it. And that translates to race day when they're going after a big PR, like none of that stuff is guaranteed. Like you've got to have, you know, black and you've got to have some balls to step on a starting line and say, I'm going to give this a shot today. And before a marathon, I'll usually give them a workout that they're a little scared to, to get going on and maybe they'll bomb it. And you know, that's fine. I mean, they'll learn something from that, but they may hit it too and, and surprise themselves. And that gives them that little bit of confidence that they need, or that little bit of extra confidence that they need to go to the start line and be like, I'm, I'm ready to give this a shot today. Um, and, the specifics of that workout can certainly, you know, as I said, that varies depending on the athlete, but it's usually, you know, a good amount of work at a fairly aggressive intensity uh, that during a peak training week is certainly not a given that they can hit it. Um, and then how did how do you deal with the consequences of a, a missed workout? So, you know, they aren't able to hit that workout, like as a coach, and it's obviously very in individual, but, mm -hmm. you know, what would be your kind of go-to to talk the athlete through that experience yeah. of missing that major and, and important workout. Well, reminding them that they had the courage to attempt it, and that's the most important step, and that's what you need to take with you to the starting line. Because every athlete that I coach, I can think of off the top of my head, they're all training for, for something, some race, something that they want to accomplish that is, I mean, if they knew they could do it, they don't need me. Um, and I think it's important for them to to realize like it takes courage to do that. Um, and that's what I'm trying to, you know, cultivate and just remind that of them if they do have a workout that goes bad. And, and also just reminding them that it's one workout over the course of a training cycle, say 12 weeks and we're doing on average two to three. Work I mean, that's 25 workouts. If you miss one or two of them, it's not a big deal. Uh, and, and you can expect to miss one or two of them. I'd rather have them miss in a workout, learn something from it and not make that mistake during the race than to not make any mistakes at all and then get a little cocky during the race and have that ruin their day. Well, it's really all about building resilience, mm -hmm. right? That's, it's, you know, that's how you do it is by practicing and, and missing. Yeah. You're not, as you say, you're not going to do it by hitting every workout and it's easy and everything's comfortable. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about resilience on your own behalf. You shared with me um, a story about how your mom passed away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the last race that she saw you racing was Boston 20, uh, 2008. Yep. Um, can you share with me a little bit about that? Yeah. I um, appreciate asking that question. It's not something I talk often about. I don't think I've talked about it on any podcast or in any interview before, but I lost my mom in, in 2008 to a brain aneurysm it was very sudden i was actually driving to a track workout on a tuesday night i was running with new balance boston at the time now battle road track club i believe is is what they're called but i was driving out to waltham to run our tuesday night workout 
and it was raining, but I was going out anyway because I knew we were going to meet, and I got a call from my dad, and I just had this sinking feeling in my gut before he even said a word to me. It just... Can't, I can't describe it, but I'm like feeling that right now. And it was just a sinking feeling. And he told me that my sister had found my mom unresponsive in the bathroom and that they were going to the hospital and I should head home. And I just, I knew it wasn't good. I was like, she's gone. I just had this, just this sinking feeling in my gut that my mom had passed. And come to find out once I'd got to the hospital, she, she, ha- she had already passed when my dad called. And it's a devastating thing. Um, I was 26 years old at the time. I had just run Boston, what would that be, two and a half months before April. It was my first Boston. And if you grow up in Massachusetts, like, it's just Boston. Uh, you live there now. It's just Boston. And people will ask you, have you run the marathon? And my mom was not a runner. She was not an athlete. But growing up, you have that. Monday off from school, Patriots Day. Boston Marathon is on channel 4, 5, 7, 10. And you watch it. I watched it as a kid before I had any interest in running. My mom would watch it. And um, she knew that, you know, she she knew that it was a big deal. Like, it's just a big deal, you know, in that area. And when I got into marathons, that was my second marathon. And I was running Boston. She was really excited. She told all her friends, you know, her son running Boston. I ended up having... Honestly, I had a rough day uh, at that Boston Marathon. I, I kind of unraveled a bit over the second half, but I finished 51st um, at the 2008 Boston Marathon, and my mom was so proud of that, and I'll never forget how proud she was of that day, even though I was disappointed because I had blown up, but she would tell anyone who listened that her son finished 51st in the Boston Marathon. And, you know, that was the last race that, she ever saw me run and um, I didn't go back to it until 2015 Um, so seven years in between and ended up being the you know the the best best marathon I'd run in those seven years I didn't you know I ran about two minutes slower than I did in 2008 but I executed really well it was a crappy year Um, you know and I I placed fairly high and I knew she would have you know I knew she would have been proud of that but you know to go back to your question like her you know, her passing is, to this day, the most impactful event on my life. It flipped my whole family's life upside down. You know, my my dad lost his wife of, you know, 26 years at that point, unexpectedly. Um, you know, my me and my siblings lost, you know, our mom. Um, you know, my grandfather lost his daughter, and aunts and uncles lost their sister, and many people lost a friend, and I'd never experienced anything like that before. I'd lost my grandfather years prior, and he's someone who's also very influential on in my life. And but he was, you know, he was older, and you know, he was sick, and still not easy. But something about that—the shock of something happened so suddenly and so unexpectedly—that really stings. And it forced me to, you know, I mean, I was crushed, but it forced me to reevaluate my own life and it still forces me to go back from time to time and not necessarily reevaluate but remind myself that life is short and we've only got one of them and it's not worth our time to spend it being caught up in bullshit 
and and I think for me like you know as crushing of a day as that was for me um I really you know it reminded me that there's positive to take out of every situation and sometimes that is not you know super obvious um but it's helped me you know to your question use that word resilience it's helped me to become more resilient because I realize that our time here is is finite and I realize that you know, I, I was able to deal with that moment in my life and, you know, sort of bounce back from it. Um, it also just helped me to, you know, kind of appreciate my life and to not waste time, um, not get caught up in things. And yeah, I mean, you know, also, you know, the one thing my, my wife and I share in common and how we started talking actually is we both lost our mom. She lost her mom to, to cancer and it wasn't an unexpected occurrence. Like, like mine was but that's sort of like what brought us together and so you know I look back at this this moment which as I said it's the most impactful event of my life most terrible thing and you know in a lot of ways you know anything I would do anything that I could to spend a few more minutes with my mom and just to tell her you know all the things that I never had a chance to tell her before she before she left um, but at the same time you know I think I'm the person that I am now I have the outlook on my life that I have now. I have the relationships that I have now because of that moment. And and I think that's you know, I think that's the resilience that I've been able to to develop from you know, from that day almost 11 years ago. Um I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I know it's not easy to share that and um it's yeah, I I'm on I don't think I've ever shared that and it, it's you know, it's a tricky thing to talk about. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And I think that, um, yeah, I I think back to kind of like things that have happened in my life and I feel like I'm very lucky enough that the kind of the major tragedy that, that I've encountered was actually something that happened to myself with my accident and it gave me a moment to pause to think about how I want to approach my life. So I feel lucky that it hasn't been the loss of someone really special and close to me. Um, how... D- how did running play a role for you in that grieving process? Did you continue to run or did you kind of step away from it for a time? Like how did that actually, you know, play a part in your grieving process? I ended up going for a run later that night when I got home. I I ran a four mile loop from my house that I was living in at, at the time and wasn't, a training run it was just I didn't know what else to do and it was uh you know I had just run Boston a few months prior and I remember being I think I was still in pretty good shape you know at the time but that was the first time for me that running was more than a training session and I think maybe I didn't realize it quite at the time, but looking back, I've realized how important those runs are. And I take them all the time now, um, electively. And, and I mean, for me, you know, we talked about CIM last fall and I trained hard for that. But even when I'm training hard for something, I still make sure I take at least one run a week where it's just to myself. And it's, you know, yeah, I'll log the mileage. I don't wear a watch. Uh, Mondays, I'm, I'm 
famous for that. Like I, I don't wear a watch on Mondays when I'm home. I run the same loop. Uh, I know how far it is and, and I don't run it with anybody. It's just for me. Um, and that run has become really important. It's just a time for reflection. It's a time for me to gather myself to, to at the beginning of the week to try to set the tone for the week. Think about what it is that is important to me and what I want to do and how I'm going to, you know, approach it. And, you know, even beyond just that standing weekly run, if I, if I just need time to myself, I will put my shoes on and go out the door. Uh, and it has, you know, I don't think of it just as training. Like it's, it's a release for me and, and it's, it's a social thing too. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to that, that run, that first run I took after my mom passed away, it showed me the, the power of running as a therapeutic outlet. Do you think it was like wanting to kind of return a little bit to normality? Like there was a shock that like, you know, life is never, ever going to be the same again. Yeah. And it's just, it's what I do. Um, and in some level, I don't mean this in a bad way. It's, it's what I know and good, bad, whatever. It's like, I can always run. Um, if I'm injured, obviously it makes things a bit more challenging, but knock on wood, I've, I've taken a lot of careful steps over the last several years. I've dealt with some pretty traumatic injuries. Um, to allow myself to stay healthy because I feel like for me, I, if I were to never race again, I could live with that. Um, but I, I need running more as, you know, as my time. Um, and as for something much more than, you know, than training, then I, you know, then I do a hard workout or a race or anything like that. Is it a place you foster creativity as well? Do you go yeah get your best ideas out on the road some of them yeah some of them that monday runs great for that um when i literally have no feedback at all i'm not wearing a watch i don't know how fast i'm going i don't care um i know i'm out there for about a half an hour and i can let my mind go wherever it wants and sometimes that's when the best ideas will come to me to the point where i'll get to the end of the block and i almost have to sprint for the door so i can get in and get something down before it it leaves my head. So it's, yeah, it's great for that too. Yeah. I find that for myself as well. Like I've, I've started to schedule time in my day to ride my bike. Cause mm-hmm. that's where I have those. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll, you know, I'll listen to a podcast and I'll be able to really absorb it. Whereas if I'm sitting at my desk or I'm commuting or something, I'm, I'm actually not really listening, Yeah. but in those moments I can really listen. And then other times I just want no, uh, I want no noise. I want no anything. It's just really just being in nature. Um, feeling the wind against your skin and kind of just, you know, giving yourself that opportunity to, to be and create. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important for people to find that in themselves. Yeah, and as I'm talking to you now, I'm realizing I need more of that in my life. And it doesn't have to be more running necessarily, um, but just scheduling that time throughout the day to not have any input. I mean, I have a lot of input in my life. I coach... 25 plus athletes i've got a growing email list i've got tens of thousands of podcast listeners and i love hearing from people but it's a you know it's a lot of input and i could spend my entire day responding to that input but for my own sanity for my own creativity for my own general well-being i think it's important to have more of those 
30 minute sessions maybe it's not a run but just where i'm not connected to anything and i can i've got no input i've just got my own thoughts and can think through some things and maybe come up with some new ideas and use that to you know just make myself a more effective human being yeah and i think it's back to that point of putting on your oxygen mask first like for you in 2018 that was focusing on a result but that's not always going to be the case and Mm -hmm. you mentioned it you know you you may not always be able to race but hopefully you're always able to run or you know if you can't run eventually maybe it's riding your bike or something like that it's just that release that you need yeah well for me i've got running to thank for so much i work in the running industry coach runners write newsletter about running podcasts about running i met my wife you know, I shared that story about how we started talking about, you know, we, sh- we share that our moms were, um, you know, both passed away, but we met through a running club that I was coaching in San Diego. And my best friends to this day are people that I've met through running, most of them. And the biggest lessons that I've learned about myself and about other people and have been able to apply to other areas of my life are through running. And for those reasons, it's something that I never want to be too far away from. I think it's fair to say that you are an influencer in the industry. And I think with that comes responsibility and you've done a really amazing job at sharing your story and particularly around disordered eating, you know, can you share a little bit more about that? And I think it's something that's important to talk about and people need to be aware Mm -hmm. of it. Um, Do you mind sharing that side of your story as well? Yeah. When I, graduated college in 2004 I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally other than run I wanted to give that a go unfortunately I wasn't a collegiate star I was division two all-american I'd run some quick times on the track but I was not getting any kind of contract out of school what I really wanted to do was get onto one of the post-collegiate development teams like the Hansons or Zap Fitness or one of the others, but I wasn't quite fast enough. I was a 14.30 5K runner and needed to be a 14 flat guy. And I needed to to close that gap. And I was provided an opportunity to join a group in Eugene, Oregon. It was not one of those upper tier groups. Didn't provide much in the way of support. Had a few training partners. And I really felt that I needed to join a group like that to really take my running to the next level and in addition to that I also felt like I needed to look like a top tier distance runner I still have this book upstairs it's like training profiles of uh, high school distance runners and it's training of some of the best Americans that we've ever had, Chris Selinski, Dathan Ritzenhain, Ed and Jorge Torres, like all these guys. And I, I would go through that book and I'd look at them. And this was when they were beyond, you know, had how big they were in high school and then it had their height and weight from, you know, when they were in college or professionally. And I would look at all the guys who were 5'8", like me, and I'd see that they weighed anywhere between 115 and 125 pounds for the most part. And when I graduated college, I was a healthy 140. That was about what I had raced at. And I was never obsessive about it, but I knew when I stepped on the scale, that's where I was. And I got this idea into my head that if I wanted to race at that level, I needed to look like those guys. And 
I just went for it as quickly as I could. And long story short, I lost 16, 17 pounds. I got down to about 124 within a matter of months just by cutting calories almost down to nothing. I would play this game where I would track everything that I took in and I could not allow myself to exceed a thousand calories for the day total. And that was with me running over a hundred miles a week at the time. So if you're listening to this, you can tell those numbers don't add up. If you're running a hundred plus miles a week, uh, and you're only consuming at most a thousand calories a day and there are many days when I wouldn't even hit that, you develop a deficit pretty quickly. And event I lost the weight. I got down to, you know, 124 pounds. Um, and I still ran a couple decent races until I wasn't anymore. And I suffered three pretty major stress fractures, uh, two in my sacrum, both sides, one on my um, pubic symphysis, which the orthopedic doctor told me he should not see in a otherwise healthy male in his early to mid 20s. That's something that you see in elderly women and birthing mothers. Um, So, you know, I, I mean, I never was clinically diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I definitely had disordered eating. The way that I was thinking about food and calories and, you know, my body was not healthy. And fortunately, I mean, I went down that spiral pretty quickly. Fortunately, I was able to pull myself out of it before I got past the point of of no return. Um, But I mean, I got to a point where it wasn't about performance anymore. It was about seeing if I could win this game of not exceeding a thousand calories a day seeing if i could get close to 120 pounds on the scale 10 mile run wasn't one tenth of a hundred mile week it was you know it was roughly a thousand calories burned that's how i looked at it um and that is not how anyone should be looking at um their relationship with food or, or running but certainly not if your stated objective is to try and run at the highest level possible how do you manage that with the athletes you coach are you kind of aware of that type of thinking Mm -hmm. with the athletes and uh, have you had to have difficult conversations at any point throughout your coaching career with athletes who have may have those tendencies yeah i've had to have a couple difficult conversations but for me i think the cornerstone any successful relationship whether it's with your spouse with your friends with coach athlete is communication and for me about half of the athletes that I, I coach don't live in my general area. So I almost need to over communicate with them, try to talk on a regular basis. Even those that I do see around here, like I'm seeing them a couple times a week or we're catching up and it's just being in constant communication with them. And as I was saying earlier, understanding what's going on in their lives, how they're thinking about things. Um, and you know, if they're, they, I mean, they know if there's anything that they want to talk about with me, they can they can talk to me and it'll be between us and I'm happy to help if I can't help them solve whatever problem it is that they're dealing with I can point them in in the right direction and I've had a couple of those conversations with males and females that I've coached but really I mean I've put my story out there 
publicly. And just, you know, just yesterday I got back to someone who heard me on another podcast talking about this and it was a male and, and he said, Hey, I, you know, I thought I was the only person dealing with this until I heard you, you know, talking about it. And that's exactly why I'm, you know, I'm sharing my story. So from a coaching perspective, you know, I just try to be supportive of my athletes in any way that they need me to be supportive, whether it's an eating issue or an injury that they're dealing with or something's gone awry in their, in their personal life. And I think that kind of communication is important between a, a coach and athlete and not all the time, but more often than not, you can catch some of these problems before they become big ones. Yeah. And I think, you know, the responsibility of being in the media and having a platform mm-hmm. and being able to share these types of things is important as well. And I think you're doing an incredible job with that. Thanks. Um, you know, when you do share these stories, you obviously have some people who reach out to you and, you know, are looking for advice or thoughts like, you know, does that fuel you to continue the work that you do with getting that positive feedback from people? Yes, because it's making an impact on their lives. That's the, that's the important thing. Um, even, you know, with me sharing this morning that I'm dealing with a little bit of burnout personally, I don't want people to feel bad for me. I don't want sympathy, but I want people to know that they're, you know, I know other people deal with the same thing. It's like they're not alone. Um, and I think for me, by sharing my experiences with disordered eating, it's not to put me on any kind of a pedestal or to solicit feedback from people or sympathy or whatever people want to lend. It's, it's to, it's to be a resource, you know, for people, um, you know, it's to, it's to let them know that, that if they're dealing with something similar, they're not alone in that. And, you know, to, when I have those, you know, when I have those moments where I'm like, is it worth my while to be so open to share these stories? Um, sometimes <laughs> you can feel like it's all for naught and you hear from one person who was impacted by something that I shared and that's, that's enough for me. Like if I, if I could help someone to realize something in their own lives, in their own life, then you know, it was totally worth sharing that whatever story it was. Yeah, I agree. You shared about your mom and I thank you mm-hmm. for that. You've also hinted at how important your family is and your dad, you know, you shared with me that, that he was an immigrant. He was born in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about work ethic and uh, how that's had an impact on you. One thing I'm really interested to ask you is um, you obviously work hard. Those generations worked hard. But though that generation, our parents' generation, probably didn't have an opportunity to share the fact that they were burnt out or they were feeling a certain way. Um, talk to me about the work ethic that you learned from the from your from your father and and from the the immigrant roots and background. But then talk to me about how you feel about the opportunity to be open and um, we have an, a generation of abundance. We're the first mm-hmm. generation of people who, you know, can do work like our, like that we're doing. Yeah. Talk to me work. about that. So my dad moved here to the United States with his brother and my uncle when he was 12. My uncle was a bit younger and my grandparents. Uh, and this was in the 1960s. And they moved here. They had some family had moved here prior to them, but they spoke no English. They had no jobs. My grandfather worked in laundry at the state hospital in Massachusetts. Uh, my grandmother 
just worked at the local market, helped out, you know, sort of around the house. My dad started school, not speaking any English, got in a lot of fights, and they really had to work for everything. I mean, absolutely everything, just having to learn the language, having to learn how to, you know, make money and create that better life that they were in search of for themselves um, when they came here to, you know, to the United States. And one thing my dad and my grandfather would tell me from a young age, and my dad still reminds me of now, is that if you want something in life, no one is going to hand it to you. You've got to go out and get that for yourself. And that was instilled in me in a very early age and continues to be reinforced and continues to guide me, quite honestly, um, in my own pursuits, you know, athletic, personal, professional, and, you know, and otherwise. And I think that gets lost in our society today. I mean, I still, so my grandfather passed away when I was in college. My grandmother's 92 years old, uh, still lives by herself, very independent. She's obviously slowed down quite a bit her old age. She's sharp as a tack completely with it, but physically she's not as strong as she once was, but she still doesn't want help from anyone. It's still her last resort is to ask someone for help, even though she knows you know, that, that she needs it. If she wants something, her first inclination is to, to try and go get it herself. And if she needs help to, you know, to, to reach out only if she realizes she can't do something. And I think, (laughs) I think that some of that's rubbed off, you know, certainly on, on me because I'm more apt to just go out and do something on my own and not ask for help if I, you know, if I, if I can, um, maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was instilled in me, you know, early on. And, you know, my dad worked as a, my dad worked as a plumber. He retired last year. Um, very manual. My, my uncle's a machinist, like very manual labor type of jobs. And, you know, they succeeded in their goal of creating a better life for their family. It's why they came here. And my dad wanted me and my siblings to have a better life than, you know, he had growing up here. And, that's just something I try not to, you know, lose sight of. And I think, you know, I've seen it now and whether it's the generational thing, like see younger people coming up now who expect things to be easier, expect things to be handed to them. And I just feel fortunate that I was raised in a household where nothing was ever easy. Yeah, it probably gave you a really good perspective yeah. that you have carried throughout your life. And I don't know if I answered the second part of your question. Uh, what was it? Can you remind me? Yeah, just about the fact that, you know, our parents didn't have the opportunity to, you know, start an internet-based business or right. a digital business or or really pursue things that they were passionate about. It was, you know, you were, uh, you were a plumber or you were a machinist or whatever, and that's kind of what you did to get by. Yeah, and my dad... And I've talked about this because even though he went that route, he still, my dad still does not own a computer, does not have an email address, has a cell phone so we can get in touch with him. But that's about the extent of the technology that he uses. But I know when he was working as a plumber and he would do some related, you know, side hustles, um, very manual side hustles, but he would work his nine to five job and then he would go you know, fix a bathroom for somebody or help them out with their, you know, with their plumbing. And he, he worked 
a lot. And um, I know he had at least one incident where he worked himself into the ground and ended up, you know, in a hospital and is very real burnout. And, and we've talked about that. And when I talk to him, I talk to him twice a week, Wednesdays and Sundays, he'll ask me how work is going and if I'm traveling a lot. And he always warns me, he's like, watch out for yourself, you know, watch out for yourself. And, and it's, it's good to hear that. And, and I think, you know, like I had written in my newsletter this morning for me, it's just, it's recognizing that this, this could end up being like, I don't think it's what I'm dealing with right now is necessarily that bad, but it could be if I, you know, if I let it go and it's just important to check in with yourself from time to time and, you know, understand that, that, now more so than ever that burnout is real but it certainly existed in generations before us they just didn't have platforms to tell any, anyone about it or an alternative yeah you, know, you alternative. just had to you put on your it. shoes and get to work yeah and and that is you know and that's something that that i still do to this day and i feel like i've you know i, I just gotta every day i've got to sit my butt in the chair and you know i've got to write and that's why i haven't missed a shakeout in the last 172 weeks and i think it's exactly that mentality it's like just get back in the chair and start writing and um i think there's something to that and and there's something that's necessary about taking that approach but i also think you got to be careful with it yeah and i think it can be related to sport too you know you just have to show up and you know the the next mile is going to be better or worse Mm -hmm. than the previous one but it's about just moving forward and consistent momentum yeah consistency is key to all success i really believe that um Tell me about mile 20, mile 22 of the marathon. What's your inner voice telling you in that moment? Which marathon? (laughs) Anyone. Um, Well, I think a good one to go back to is Boston last year. Very unideal conditions, to, to put it lightly. It was cold. It was wet. It was raining. And at mile you know, that last 10 K I was just, I was just telling myself to stay on it. And I was starting to feel the effects of the cold at that point. Uh, I couldn't feel my fingers. I couldn't get any gels down. I was definitely slowing down a little bit, um, because it was very windy those last four miles. I was still passing, some people I was not feeling very great, and I just kept telling myself to, to stay on it, despite the fact that I was starting to unravel and things weren't going quite as well as they were early in the race. It was it was just that. It was just, just stay on it. Um, don't give in. Don't, you're not stepping off now. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a big mantra for me last year was was stay on it um i feel that whether it's in a race or in other aspects of of life you can you know you can allow yourself to to back off or give yourself you know give yourself that out to you know to back off or when things get hard to you know to not stick in there and for me um you know it, hap- it actually happened in a race it wasn't even a marathon it was a half marathon i ran prepping for boston and i was with a pack through eight miles and things started to get hard and they got away from me and I made the decision not to go, um, to, to save myself. And they never came back. And quite frankly, I was pissed after the race. And I told myself that I had another half like a month later and then I had Boston. I was like, 
was like when you hit that moment in mile 10 of a half marathon or mile 20 of the marathon where you come to that critical moment where you have to make a decision do i you know do i let them go or do i stick in here and see what happens i decided made the decision to to stay on it and that was you know that was a mantra for me that's what my that was my inner voice for you know for those last la- those last couple of races and it's even extended beyond that stay on it love it parallel that to CIM mm-hmm. 20 miles in you know you're telling yourself to stay on it what did you learn from that experience in Boston and those half marathons you just talked about that you were able to implement on that day that seemed to work out really well for you it's more a reminder than anything else that and this was during the race that just because you are hurting doesn't necessarily mean that you're slowing down or things are going poorly. I think at the end of, of CIM, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily slowing down. I was hurting quite a bit. Um, the last, the last 10 K, but I had the confidence that I could stay with it for another mile and then another mile and then another mile. And really, just I say I call it staying small like I would just stay small and just try to make the best decisions that I could in a, in a given moment and you know th- eventually those moments added up and you know I was at the finish line what's next in terms of races well I'm racing a half marathon this Sunday in Napa I'll be up at the Napa Valley Marathon and Half for the weekend, leading a shakeout run on Saturday and hosting a panel that night and running the race on Sunday. I'm not running a marathon this spring after doing two last year. I knew that I would need a break from that. Um, so it'll be the longest race that I run this spring. And then I'll go to San Diego, run the Carlsbad 5000. A week later, I'll be in Boston for marathon weekend and I'll run the BAA 5k and I haven't really thought much beyond that but kind of excited to get back to some shorter and focus on some shorter races this spring it's been a few years since I've been since I've been able to do that awesome um we talked about the morning shakeout um how can people find that where can they find your work easiest place is just the morningshakeout.com you can subscribe there you can check out all the past issues there, link to all the podcast episodes are there. If you go to your podcast player and you put in the morning shakeout, should be the first one that comes up. There is another running podcast called The Shakeout. I believe Canadian Running puts that on. But if you have The Morning Shakeout in there, it should filter it out pretty well. Those are probably the best best places. All of my social handles are just my name, Mario Fraioli. Um, also, The AM Shakeout, but those are more... Uh, at least the the Twitter feed's more of like an RSS feed than anything else. But yeah, everything I'm doing's at the Morning Shakeout, and at my at my name on Twitter and on Instagram. Last question, very selfish. What can someone do to get back into running that has definitely had a hiatus from running, loves running, uh, knows they're going to be starting from a place of uh, complete zero? What would be the advice that you would give me to get back into shape commit just commit 
and that doesn't need to be getting out and running every day, but maybe it's every other day. Maybe it's three times a week, whatever that is for you. Establish that and commit to it and don't let anything knock you off of that pursuit. And I mean, that's really the, I think that's the, that's the most important step and you don't have to be a hero. Um, you just have to commit. And then we talked about this earlier, commit to consistency, uh, commit to getting out three times a week, um, and building that into your day, into your schedule and making it a priority. And for me, um, it wasn't getting back into running, but that was it last year. It was just, it was just kind of committing to that, committing to that consistency. And I think if you can do that, if you can do, if you can commit to something consistently enough over time, magic's bound to happen. Love it. This has been fantastic. Uh, I look forward to the return leg in Boston in a couple <laughs> of months. Um, and, uh, yeah, we can host you there and, uh, yeah, this has been a pleasure, mate. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. What a great episode. I'm very grateful to Mario for his time and for being so open and vulnerable during our discussion. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Inner Voice Audio Experience. If you did, please share this episode with a friend. Take a screenshot of your phone and drop it in an Instagram story and please check out our website, innervoice.life where we feature inspiring and unique content directly from your favorite endurance athletes. Thanks again to our sponsor of this episode, iCore Labs Performance CBD. If you're like me, you love to train hard and push your limits, but why is it that you're still struggling for a good night's sleep? Quality rest is one of the most powerful ways to speed up recovery. It's also vital to maintaining our overall health and well-being. However, for a lot of athletes, sleep deprivation is a serious challenge. If you're not getting the rest you need, you're not going to be feeling your best, let alone performing your best. So what's the solution? While nothing is a cure-all, it turns out that CBD has a lot to offer. Since I started using iCore a couple of months ago, I've noticed my sleep is deeper and more restful, and I wake up ready to take on the day, even with a toddler in the house. If you're thinking about trying CBD, it's important to know that not all products are created equally. Look for full-spectrum hemp extract like iCore Lab's 300mg daily product for the most benefit. And thanks to iCore, you can try their product with 15% off each and every order from their website using the code INNERVOICE. Head to iCoreLabs.com and see if iCore can help. I think you'll really feel the benefits. Thanks again for being part of the Inner Voice community. It means a lot. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Audio Experience. <laughs>